Welcome, birders. This is Ed Pullen, your host on the Bird Banner Podcast, where birders talk birding. Birds and birding are dependent, our enjoyment of birds and birding, are dependent on lots of things. COVID has put a huge dent in our ability to get around, you know, travel, get together in groups to go birding, but it has opened up birding to a lot of people who might not have had the time or inclination to do birding. It's been a lot written and and talked about how birding has expanded in popularity during this time of COVID. Well, other things uh, affect birding, obviously, besides uh, the ability to travel and get together with friends to go birding. Habitat is everything for birds, and we as birders know to go to the right habitat to find the birds we want to find. In the winter in Washington, a lot of birders will go to eastern Washington, especially to east-central Washington, the Okanagan Highlands and that area, to find some of the winter specialty birds that are hard to find in our state, really can't find in our state in the summer, and are hard to find anywhere else in our state. Uh, And that's one of the more accessible, easy places to bird, to find species like snow bunting, uh, a lot of fancy chickens, uh, sage grouse, sharp-tailed grouse, gray partridge, chucker, things like that. Some raptors like rough-legged hawk and jeer falcon and prairie falcon and uh, golden eagles, of course, and lots of birds that we find up there, seed-eating birds, finches like pine grosbeak, common redpole, white-winged crossbill, red crossbill, things like that, that are easier to find in the winter, a lot of times because in some years they move down from the northern areas where they might stay some years and come down into our area. Uh, so we have a habit of going to places that we know, we know what hotels to go to, we know what roads to drive on, we know where to look, we know, we know how to bird those areas, and so it's easier for us to find the species we're looking for. Well, sometimes going to less traveled places can be fun too. I just got back from an eastern Washington trip where I checked out some habitats that uh, are terrific too. I went up to Mount Spokane and saw white-winged crossbills. I had expected to see a lot of waterfowl at Turnbull National Wildlife Refuge. Little did I think that Almost every bit of water there was frozen and there were hardly any waterfowl there. Uh, So I learned some things. I looked at the eBird graphs and saw, yeah, there are waterfowl up through, you know, October into November. Yeah, there was probably nobody birding there later in the year. They're probably still there. Well, they probably weren't still there because all those places were frozen solid. Uh, So I learned some things, but had a really nice few days birding in Spokane and Ferry and Whitman and Lincoln counties, just checking out the areas, seeing some places I hadn't seen, and uh, checking out the habitats there. Well, a lot of our birds in Washington and in North America are what we call neotropic migrants. There are about 200 species, more or less, uh, that breed in the temperate northern areas. Some shorebirds especially and some other birds way up in the Arctic. A lot of them spread across the boreal forest and a lot of them across our grasslands and various habitats in North America. But this really isn't where they spend most of the year. Those birds spend a lot of the year way south of here on the wintering grounds. And when we think about habitat protection and habitat enhancement in the wintering grounds, or really anywhere, a lot of times we think of vast areas, preserving primary forests, that sort of thing, uh, preserving the Amazon, save the uh, pampas and the savanna, uh, save huge swaths of area. But improving small areas of habitat is very important also. My daughter, 
Jean, I talked with her on an earlier podcast. She and her husband, Alan, uh, are into agroforestry. Uh, Alan's pretty much an expert in that, has developed a lot of farmland into uh, food forests, agroforestry, where trees and various crops are grown all in a symbiotic relationship. So it's not monocropping where you'd have huge areas of one type of planting corn, or planting pineapples, or planting palm oil trees or whatever in big areas, but rather having areas where you have symbiotic relationships of various levels, the overstory, the midstory, the understory, all of which can be planted with fruits and other food-bearing crops uh, that grow well together and can be very, very productive and very, very environmentally friendly. Uh, when you don't plant the same monocrops, you don't need to use really any pesticides or herbicides. You can get great yields of organic produce uh, without using a lot of chemicals or other things that might be you know, difficult to avoid if you're going to plant one crop over hundreds and hundreds of acres. And so those areas are great for a food source, but also terrific for wildlife birds especially. A lot of our North American birds can do very nicely in those edgy sort of, uh, they're not native or primary forest habitats, but they're very rich habitats for our neotropic migrants, or a lot of them. And so I have as my guest today, uh, Florence Reed and Patrick McMillan. Florence is the originator of Sustainable Harvest International. It's a not-for-profit that helps local farmers develop their land into a sustaining, producing agroforest uh, that is able to feed themselves, able to produce crops for cash, and is tremendously helpful to the habitat for preventing global warming and for our neotropic migrants to winter in. Uh, so I thought that would be a great time uh, to talk about that. Well, Patrick McMillan uh, is a longtime birder. He was a professor at Clemson University for years, just moved to Washington recently. I just did, learned about that literally when I was getting ready to do the podcast. So I can't wait to get, get together with Patrick sometime uh, over on the Kitsap Peninsula where he's working now. And anyway, Patrick talks a lot about the birding aspects and habitat aspects of this, uh, this program. And I thought it would be fun to learn uh, about what Sustainable Harvest International is doing to help small farmers develop sustainable agroforestry practices that are also really helpful to our migrant songbirds and, and learn about that today. So help me welcome to the Bird Banner Podcast, Florence Reed and Patrick McMillan with Sustainable Harvest International. Florence, Patrick, welcome to the Bird Banner Podcast. I'm excited to talk with you guys today. I know that uh, both of you know my daughter, Jean, who lives in Costa Rica and have been involved in all sorts of really cool stuff going on with uh, sustainable, sustainable agriculture. So Florence, why don't you start by telling me about sustainable harvest and your involvement and how you know Patrick? Sure. Uh, well, I founded Sustainable Harvest International back in 1997, uh, based on my experience as a Peace Corps volunteer in Panama, which was where I really got to see firsthand things I had studied in college about tropical deforestation, and particularly slash and burn farming, where the farmers were burning more forest every year. And after repeated burning, the land was becoming so degraded that the natural vegetation wouldn't come back, the wildlife had no habitat anymore and it was really becoming more of a desert situation. So the families could no longer grow their crops and uh, the forest was lost along with all of the uh, amazing 
uh, birds and other wildlife that I saw in other parts of the country where they still had forests, where I had the joy of seeing quetzals and macaws and toucans. And um, I'm not a birder myself, so I, I, I noticed the, those big flashy ones, but <laughs> uh, Patrick cool. uh, knows a lot more. And I was lucky enough uh, to meet him through a mutual friend, Chris Marsh, uh, who lives in South Carolina, um, runs an environmental uh, organization there and was very aware of the fact that the migratory birds that they enjoyed seeing in South Carolina during uh, certain seasons were going down to Central America for the winters and finding less habitat there. And so he saw his conservation work in South Carolina as very tied to work uh, preserving and creating habitat for the migratory birds down in Central America. So that was how he and I got connected, and he uh, introduced me uh, to Patrick, who uh, went down to, to visit our programs. And I'll let Patrick <laughs> talk more about that. Take it away, Patrick. Yeah. So, well, I am a birder. I mean, that's a, that's one of my main interests um, outside of you know the kind of neat fact that I've gotten paid to bird for much of my life, which is, a, which is always fun. Um, but my, my main interest, you know, and, and what I was so impressed with, with uh, sustainable harvest um, is that they, they really got it um, in terms of the way their program. And I know we'll talk more about um, the way Florence's program is set up within the countries, but, you know, to me, um, the, the real message that we don't hear often in the United States is that, you know, it's more than just old growth rainforest and big patches of old growth rainforest that provide important habitat for our neotropical migrant birds. And if you think about the habitats they're living in here, you know, when they go there, many of the species aren't living in, in a very different habitat. If you see chestnut-sided warblers on forest margins here, um, you also see them on forest margins and in, in garden type settings in places like Belize, um, where we did the, the program. And, you know, really, I wanted to bring forward that there's there's more to garden birds in the tropics than just kiskadees and melodious blackbirds. You know, this is a place where uh, a huge percentage of our birds go to spend uh, their time. And, and you know, the big threat, of course, um, is not just loss of um, the large tracts of older growth forests, which which do provide important habitats for things like golden wing warblers and wood thrushes, but also the loss of traditional agricultural land. And, and by that, I mean small scale uh, home gardens, home gardening communities, places where um, organic forest gardening really is practiced. And, and that's what sustainable harvest is about. It's about maintaining sustainability on a piece of land rather than working to um, to move constantly and degrade places. Yeah, I am somewhat aware of that. My uh, daughter's husband, Alan, is a, a, a real proponent and kind of a somewhat of an expert in agroforestry and has set up a lot of uh, uh, agroforestry setups around yoga farms and other, other sort of Echo resort, uh, fitness resort sort of places and other things. And mostly, I think, it's throughout uh, Central America. And uh, so I, I heard about this first and my son got really involved. And so I said, gosh, this is cool stuff. What, how, how can I learn about this? And and so I, I feel like I'm, I'm getting a little bit of a handle on how it works. But maybe one of you can tell me, 
what is how does this work? How does a a a, a, per, a person living in one of these areas, or a family, or a group of families, how does how does it happen? How do they change a, a burned out, you know, dried up cow pasture into an agroforestry setup? Um, sure, I could speak to that a little bit. So with Sustainable Harvests Program, we hire local people to work with the farmers over several years because it takes a number of different practices all uh, working together to really be successful farming using practices that are regenerative, regenerating the soil, uh, the ecosystems, uh, and, and the climate as, as far as that goes. And so uh, farmers go through our program step by step, adding new techniques as they go, but it really boils down to two uh, basic concepts. Uh, one is building up healthy soil and maintaining healthy soil. And then the other one is bringing biodiversity back to the land. So the farmers in our program learn how to do things like make compost uh, and use compost uh, using different types of composting uh, techniques. They learn about erosion barriers because often the best Flatland is owned by the large landowners, and the poorer uh, small farmers that work with us are often farming on hillsides. And so erosion control is very important. That can be done with terracing. It can be done with dead barriers, uh, putting uh, rocks or uh, logs across the hillside, uh, or live barriers with uh, trees, with uh, pineapples, uh, more permanent crops that hold the soil in place. Uh, the trees can be nitrogen-fixing trees, so they're also improving the soil while holding holding it in place. And they can be pruned back so they don't they don't shade the crops. And uh, then cover crops are another really great way to build up the health of the soil, putting nutrients into the soil, and also improving the texture uh, of the soil, making it really conducive to growing healthy plants, productive plants, plants that are more resistant to, to pest and, and illness. Uh, and then layered on top of that would be the biodiversity, where farmers coming into the program uh, are often only growing a few traditional staple crops that don't uh, provide for a really healthy balanced diet and also aren't enough to create a, a healthy ecosystem. And so the farmers in our program go from growing two or three crops to growing 20 or 30 different crops. Um, some of them are trees in different types of uh, agroforestry systems, and uh, others are traditional garden crops, uh, fruits, vegetables. Uh, we also do things like fish ponds uh, in conjunction with, with rice uh, in, in many cases. So it really provides everything that the families need to feed themselves well, uh, have additional crops that they can sell to, to improve their income, and doing it all in a way that's creating habitat, that's drawing down carbon out of the atmosphere back into the soil to stabilize the climate, and also protecting watersheds. Very cool. Uh, so it sounds like over a period of uh, a few years, uh, your program can help a family generate a at least the food sovereignty on their land and probably some income in addition. Mm -hmm. is, are the crops that are, are produced this way, are they largely crops for local consumption or, or is this scalable to feed the world? Well, it's definitely scalable to, to feed 
the world, the, the smallholder farmers, uh, such as the ones who work with us, they are the farmers that are feeding most of the world's population as it is. They provide food for about 70% of the world's population already. Uh, and that's despite the fact that only about 10% of them are using the, these good regenerative agroecology practices. So they, mm -hmm. they could be uh, producing a, a lot more than they already are. And uh, the, the farmers in our program, we focus first on making sure they're feeding themselves well, uh, because I've seen just too many programs where uh, farmers are encouraged to grow one single crop. Uh, which Cash is crop, sure. Is, yep, not good for the wildlife. And then something happens to that crop, whether it's pests or illness or the market disappears. And the farmers were counting on the money from that crop to feed themselves. And when the money doesn't come, they're not left with no money and no food. Uh, but if they have the knowledge to grow a healthy diet for themselves, that knowledge that never disappears. That uh, is there for generations. Sure. So we focus on that first. Um, but then in addition to that, they are able to grow plenty more uh, to sell either at local markets or uh, where it makes sense for, for export markets. We try to focus more on the local markets because uh, we feel that that's more sustainable. We don't want to be adding to the carbon uh, footprint of this food more than necessary by flying food around the world that could be uh, grown and consumed locally. But in certain cases, it does make sense. Uh, I know a lot of people here in North America would not want to be without their coffee. I personally don't know if I could live without chocolate. So uh, there are certain crops that uh, I think it does make sense to be selling to uh, the export market and the, the farmers pra practicing agroecology practices can certainly do that. Very cool. You know, that goes to show uh, the self-centeredness of my question, feed the world, like I'm the world. You know, they're the world. <laughs> That makes me feel a little bit bad about that. <laughs> anyway, Patrick, uh, talking about uh, uh, chocolate, I uh, that reminded me, I watched a video yesterday that you had produced. I think it was Expeditions with Patrick in Belize, uh, where you were yeah, eating some... Some some cocoa, uh, cacao uh, fruit. Uh, so tell me, uh, get, get use that farm in Belize or or a similar place as an example of how how uh, kind of amazing a wildlife, uh, almost a microscopic miniature wildlife refuge these places can be. Yeah, well, um, they really are, uh, and you know, sustainable harvest works with farmers of all sizes. So I was I've been lucky enough to see all the different size farms that they've worked with and, and been able to look at farms that, um, you know, are only a year or two into the program and others that have been in the program for quite a while. And some of these places will absolutely blow your mind. I mean, the, the interesting thing here is that, you know, the diversification of the crop combined with the organic techniques that they use for, for pest control even on these properties and then leaving trees as part of that program because you know that we and we're finding this out in modern agriculture today that having those uh, edge habitats is really important in providing natural pest control even in row crops and so all of these practices together and the the pride of the people in producing what they're doing because it really is going back to that that sort of ancient knowledge uh, that is indigenous right there to central america 
I mean, this is where most of the food crops, the vegetable crops and, and fruit crops that we consume in the United States got their start was in the neotropics and in, in Mesoamerica and South America. And so there's a lot of pride in that and in reclaiming a heritage. And the, the end product is that, you know, I've visited these farms and you, you didn't just see a few things. Um, I pulled out one of my old lists from February a few years ago on one of these farm sites of um, a site of um, a, a well-established farm of Saul Garcia upstream from the, the uh, village of Colombia in Belize. And in just two hours visiting, I, I counted 30 species of neotropical migrants using his property. Um, and that included things that, you know, were, were living where you would expect them to live, you know, things like American red starts and chestnut-sided warblers and, and blue grosbeaks, but also things that are occupying a different habitat in their winter range than what we assume they would be in. So species like ovenbird, for instance, that, that need huge expanses of older growth, 80-plus-year-old forest, just to, to successfully rear one nest of young, they're, they're in garden spaces. They're in high-productivity places near people. And this is something I think it's key for us not to forget is that, you know, there are over 300,000 people in Belize today. If you dial back the clock to the height of the classical Mayan period, we can argue over how many people, but a million and a half, three million, nine million. You see these numbers thrown out for how many people were living in that region of Belize and, and just over into adjacent Guatemala. And it's hard to imagine that all of this biodiversity, you know, endemic species like oscillated turkeys, black holler monkeys that are confined to that Yucatan and Petén region, they managed to survive there when there were 3 million, maybe 9 million people living in that region, all subsistence agriculture. So there's a way to do it into the future. And it's reclaiming, really, our human heritage of having that traditional interaction with the land. It's important. It's important to provide high productivity, good habitat for our birds, things like oven birds and, and black-throated green warblers, which you can see on every single uh, SHI farm in, um, in Belize. So, you know, that's how it works. And, you know, I, I, I also was really impressed with the fact that this isn't just an, an agricultural program, but um, the things that uh, SHI does there uh, take into account raising the quality of life for the people altogether, while at the same time protecting the, the forest resource. So for instance, like Florence, you, you guys do the, um, the fuel efficient stoves mm -hmm. um, so that they're cooking because the traditional cooking method there is, is to cook on an open pit with a an iron pan sit on top to, to cook your corn cakes in uh, or on. And that uses a tremendous amount of wood. But, you know, for a very small investment, they're able to go in, put in these fuel efficient stoves. And instead of, you know, half a tree being consumed to cook dinner, you're cooking dinner on just a few twigs. And maybe, maybe you could talk about that and some of the composting latrines, other things that, you know, are in my mind and having worked with conservation of, of natural communities all over the world, you know, if you're not taking into account um, both pride of the people and what they're doing uh, themselves and you're not raising the quality of life, um, those things just aren't successful otherwise. Right. That's something I think that is 
uh, not common enough in international development programs is looking at the whole picture of what the families need and what the environment needs uh, to, to keep both healthy. So as you say, the wood conserving stoves are an important piece of this. While it's important that we're helping the families to produce more food on the same land every year so they don't need to cut down more forest for agriculture, if they're still needing to cut down lots of trees for their cooking, then uh, that, that's um, going against what uh, we're trying to accomplish with the regenerative agriculture. So the wood conserving stoves are a really easy way to take care of that. It allows the families to use about 75% less firewood, which is a benefit for them. It's a lot less work. It's obviously a benefit for the environment. They can just prune branches instead of cutting down whole trees. And then for the health, particularly of the women who uh, generally do most of the cooking, they're not breathing that smoke all the time, which they uh, say for women cooking over the traditional um, open fire, it's the uh, equivalent of poking of smoking uh, several packs of cigarettes a day. And there are actually millions of women around the world who die from complications from smoke inhalation because of these open fire cooking situations. So again, it's looking for ways where both the families benefit and the environment benefits. And, and some of these projects that, that seem like small pieces are uh, also important incentives. Uh, maybe it's what the family first takes an interest in, in joining our program because maybe they had a loved one die from cooking over open fires. Uh, and so the stove really brings them in, or maybe they don't have a latrine and they're, they're lacking that very basic uh, hygiene in, in their household. And so the offer of a composting latrine, which will provide them with the hygiene will also uh, then provide environmental benefits because it contributes to the uh, agroecology practices. Very cool. So it sounds like you have a pretty holistic approach to helping families become auto you know, sustainable, autonomous, whatever, whatever word fits there, as well as uh, uh, to different, different ways to be an incentive for someone to join. It might, someone might want to have a farm, someone might, their mom might have, uh, you know, their mom might have uh, died of lung disease from cooking or open fire. Uh, some may want a latrine. There are lots of uh, lots of lures out there to to attract people to your program. First of all, how how fast is your program growing, and what would it take to to speed it up? Uh, well, we have set a new vision recently. Uh, we've looked at just how much potential there is out there in scaling up these agroecology practices. Uh, as I think I mentioned, there are 500 million smallholder farmers around the world who not only are feeding most of the world, but they also have the potential to play a significant role in reversing climate change. If all 500 million of those smallholder farmers were to shift to agroecology, regenerative organic practices, they could draw down um, 16 billion tons of carbon out of the atmosphere back into the soils and into the trees um, every year. And together with reductions in greenhouse gas emissions, they could actually bring us back to pre-industrial levels of carbon in the atmosphere. So that's really big. And it's, 
it's low-hanging fruit for climate change in in my mind because it, it's a win-win. It's a lot more acceptable to to you know a lot of a lot of parts of the world to try to fund that sort of thing than it is to uh, to you know uh, stop consuming, <laughs> and, and, to put it bluntly. Right. This actually increases the food that there is uh, for people to to consume. And it's doing it in a way that's the, the benefit is to the farmers. They're not being asked to sacrifice anything. It's, it's a win-win uh, for them and uh, for, for the climate issue. And at the same time, it would produce um, a tremendous amount of wildlife habitat, as we've been talking about. Uh, I think something like eight times the uh, size of the national parks in this country would, would be created on on these farms uh i'm sorry this country being uh what country uh the united states i'm sorry okay Okay. yeah um so just in in thinking about the the effect that it would have if all uh 500 million of of the smallholder farmers shifted to to regenerative practices and the the resources are out there i've calculated that it would cost uh, around uh, $30 billion per year for 12 years to reach all 500 million smallholder farmers around the world. And oh, right gosh. now the world's governments spend $600 billion per year on agricultural subsidies, uh, mostly for agrochemicals, um, GMOs, uh, machinery, all things that are contributing to instead of helping us with global warming and with, with a variety of other environmental and social issues that we're facing, um, in, including um, the, the loss of many bird species. Uh, over a thousand or 87% of the, the total 1,200 threatened bird species are impacted by agriculture um, because agriculture is so dependent on mechanization and chemicals that either directly or indirectly uh, are, are killing these birds. And so, seeing the tremendous potential that's out there in working with the 500 million small-scale farmers around the world, Sustainable Harvest has set our own scaling up vision to impact 1 million farms by 2030, uh, which is in line with the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. Wow, Uh, a million farms, that's spectacular. um, Which would reverse the degradation of 8 million acres of land and feed 5 million people. So wow. that's the big audacious goal that we've set. <laughs> Good for you. Big, ha- we used to call those a BHAG, big, hairy, audacious goal. Yeah. <laughs> yes. In, in my business, that's what, every uh, couple of years we try to have a BHAG. Yes. So you've got a, a BHAG on steroids there, I have we, to we say. We do, um, but we Good have a for plan you. for getting there. Um, okay. Uh, we admit that it's audacious, but we think that it is realistic. Uh, we'll need to do it in partnership with others. Uh, We have some government ministers that are starting to express interest in possibly partnering with us to roll out our program on on a national level. We have some businesses uh, that have been talking with us about a partnership to replicate our program in new areas and also then to put some of the profits from their food businesses uh, back uh, into Sustainable Harvest. Uh, I don't know if I'm allowed to talk uh, specifically about your there, daughter? There are no rules. There oh, are no okay, rules on this well. podcast. The only rules is you have to be interesting. 
<laughs> well, uh, well, as as you know, your your daughter Jean is involved with uh, Jungle Project, and yes. their uh, new business selling breadfruit flour, and they're particularly interested in breadfruit because it can be grown in these agroforestry systems. Mm -hmm. And so we're talking with them about whether we can help more farmers create agroforestry farms to produce the breadfruit for for the breadfruit flour, mm -hmm. and then in turn when they turn a profit from the sale of the breadfruit flour, they would donate some of that back to offset the cost of the uh, technical assistance that we provide the farmers. And so for us, this could be a, a first pilot for some of the steps we need to take to scale up and, and reach that big goal of, of a million farms. So we're very excited about that, as well as uh, some of the other partners that have expressed interest in working with us. And so that combined with some, some innovations and, uh, and cost reductions in the program, uh, we feel we'll be able to get us to that, that goal of a million farms by 2030. And also not just a million farms, but the example that we set for all 500 million smallholder farmers around the world. Yeah, I'm sure there's a there's a tip, there's got to be a tipping point in this sort of program that when the neighbors say, "Boy, my neighbors are doing well, maybe I should do it too." That sort of thing. Exactly, and and we do see that uh, happening. Uh, we've never been able to keep up with the demand for our program. We've just uh, what we're always hampered by is having not enough funding to hire more trainers to work with all of the families that are asking to work with us. So we're continuing to look for more resources to work directly with the uh, families, but then we're also looking to build our capacity to work with partners um, as the way to really get to those those big numbers, like a million farms. So birders could uh, do more than just drink bird-friendly coffee. They could contribute to uh, Sustainable Harvest International, like I've done, if they uh, if they feel so moved. Of course, we would love that, um, and they can buy organic foods. They uh, they can buy locally grown foods, they can do their own gardening, uh, they can do their own composting or send their compost to a composting facility. There's many ways to contribute to this global move that we need to, to regenerative uh, farming practices. So Patrick, I'm going to get off topic a little bit. You just moved to Washington. I did. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I, I have you in my mind as being from Clemson. Are you, are you on sabbatical or are you retired or what's going no, on? Retired, retired from Clemson. And I'm now the director at uh, Heronswood Garden in Kingston, Washington. So up on the Kitsap, okay. just north of you. That's a facility I've never heard of. What is that? Yeah. Heronswood is a, um, uh, it, it's a 15 acre garden, a remarkable collection of plants from, from all over the place. One of the one of the most revered collections in America, I must say. That's that's how I ended up here when I heard about Heronswood hiring a director. Of course, I was on my way. But um, we're actually own, owned by the uh, Port Gamble Squalum tribe, so we are one of, if not the only, public garden in America that's um, that's owned and operated uh, by Native Americans, which makes us unique as well. And a great place to come visit. And as you said, I was at um, Clemson for many years, 20 years before that. And there I was the director of the South Carolina Botanical Garden, in addition to producing a, a TV show for um, for PBS uh, or that aired on PBS stations. But I wanted to mention here that, you know, what Florence has done uh, and what Sustainable Harvest does in these countries that we're talking about, 
needs to be replicated here as well. And she alluded to that in the South Carolina Botanical Garden, Heronswood, um, and really my philosophy, which was largely shaped by seeing what happened in Central America during my time there, has been to really make my life goal redefining beauty and redefining beauty in a way where we see as beautiful those intersections of life rather than the divisions in life. And if you're a birder, this has to be important to you. Um, because when we think about the places that we love, the places that we go, the places where we find peace, very few of them look like a bunch of boxed up hedges surrounded by, you know, lawn. These are wild places. They're interconnected places. They're places where life overlaps and, and has these incredible relationships. And so at the South Carolina Botanical Garden about 10 years ago, we decided we were going to change the way we, we did things to be more like what sustainable harvest does on the ground. And, you know, that's simply mimicking what goes on in natural ecosystems right in your own backyard, uh, leaving feral spaces that, you know, birds like from painted bunnings to indigo buntings to sparrows need to have that we often, you know, edit out of our landscapes, leaving some places where the grasses are allowed to go all the way to seed leaving blackberry hedges some places, you know, here in the Pacific Northwest, that's important. It's just as important back in the Carolinas for providing breeding habitat for golden winged warblers. Those kind of, of small scale changes that we made, we made on a big way at the South Carolina Botanical Garden. And there at the garden, we have over 50 years worth of, of recorded bird watching data from the Botanical Garden. And in those years, we'd recorded 114 species of birds using that garden just in 10 years after changing the way we do things um, to be more holistic, to do habitat gardening, to use <laughs> compost, fill all the spaces that we had with life in one way or the other. Mm -hmm. We went from 114 species to 209 species. And it, all you have to do is visit eBird and look and see what people are seeing. There's not a day that goes by that there aren't people out during migration popping in, you know, 30, 40 species of neotropical migrants. Every species of warbler we can possibly get has been seen in the garden with the exception of Kirtlands. So, you know, doing these, maintaining this idea um, of reclaiming our sort of natural relationship with the land is important. And it's important to think of it, not just in our, in our own backyards or in somebody else's backyard, but everywhere. Because, you know, the same way we talk about the decline in early successional bird species here in America mm -hmm. that right. require our messing around with the land, you know, the reason why eastern meadowlarks are in such steep decline over much of their range is because we've changed the way we live. And the same thing has to be said there um, in Central America and the neotropics throughout the world is that, you know, we haven't existed in a vacuum. There hasn't been a space for nature, a space for people, there's been an interface there constantly. And understanding our role in that interface is super important. And the work that Sustainable Harvest does is key to that, not just for the families in South America, not just for the barred ant shrikes and the, and the trogans and the motmots, but also for the chestnut-sided warblers and the indigo buntings that we enjoy right here in our own backyards. For sure. And your backyard in Clemson. We don't get those in our backyard. Yeah, you're right. But I have very <laughs> thrush in my backyard here. So that's... Very, very thrush. Yeah, very thrush. And uh, and your uh, 
your other neotropes. So we got lots of neotropes. They just don't sound like the ones on the East Coast a lot of times. Very yeah. cool. So Patrick, what I hear you saying is that uh, you know having backyard habitat is super important. Thinking about the way to landscape is is you know another way to contribute to the habitat. I, I think everyone knows that. Just not, just don't think about it all of the time. Uh, is there any movement? Is it, and this is off topic, and I don't even know why I'm asking, but is there any movement towards uh, any way we change in, agri, in huge agricultural practices, the uh, big uh, agri-farms? Is, uh, is there any foothold being made in terms of uh, coming up with uh, less monocrop, no-till farming, uh, 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 you know, finding ways to be less totally destructive to the environment, or is that just <laughs> off outside of this topic? No, that, that's definitely uh, happening. It's um, it is a little bit outside my area of expertise, since uh, my work is really focused on those 500 million smallholder uh, farms. But I know through my participation in a network called Regeneration International, that there are also a, a lot of the larger scale farms looking at ways to become regenerative as well, whether it's large cattle ranches or, or other larger farms. And there are people doing it, they're doing it successfully. I think it's more difficult for them uh, to make the, the transition than it is for a, a, a smaller farmer who's starting with very little. Uh, as opposed to a, a large farmer who ha has millions in, invested in a different way of farming, but they are finding ways of, of doing it. Uh, in, in fact, I serve on the board of directors of another organization called Regenerative Agriculture Alliance, and they're developing a network of farms that are raising what they call tree range chickens, uh, and it's an agroforestry system for raising poultry. And then it connects a number of uh, more sort of medium-sized farmers together uh, for then processing the, the meat and the eggs of these tree-range chickens collectively. So it's, it's a regenerative farming system and also a regenerative supply chain. Very cool. So things are working on multiple levels. Hopefully, uh, it, it will be not too little too late. Uh, it's hard not to be a little bit pessimistic, but I appreciate your hard work and optimism. If uh, if uh, listeners want to learn more about Sustainable Harvest, I'll make sure that I put links in the podcast notes and in the blog blog posts that I put up associated with each episode uh, that gives links to your uh, organization and how people can reach out to you. But Florence, if somebody wanted to get a hold of you quick and easy, how would they get a hold of you? Sustainableharvest.org. Okay. There's a contact page there? Yes. And I'm sure a donate page too. <laughs> of course. Uh, yes. <laughs> Good. Okay. Well, guys, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Patrick, I need to look you up and check out this uh, new uh new garden that you've got going. It sounds like a great uh, day trip from where I live to go visit it. I'm going to have to do that. Is it open now or is it on a reservation that's closed right now? Well, we're currently closed because of the, COVID, the situation yeah. with COVID, um, but we are seasonally open. We're open um, from April through the end of October. Okay. Um, and it's a great day trip. I promise you won't be disappointed. This place is absolutely amazing. If you live in Seattle, if you live anywhere in the United States, you ought to make a trip to Kitsap County and come visit Heronswood Garden. Well, I will have to do that. Well, thank you both for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. And you guys take care. Thank, thank you. you. 
Well, that wraps up the Burr Banner podcast, episode number 81, with Florence Reed and Patrick McMillan. I learned a lot looking into this episode and talking with these two experts. Uh, I learned that I have a huge first world bias. I was mortified when I asked the question as to whether this uh, style of farming is scalable to help feed the world or not. And they gently told me that this is feeding the world, uh, that uh, most people in the world don't go to the Safeway or Costco to get their you know, monocrop farm products, but rather eat off the land that they uh, grow their food on and that they can help them learn to do this in a more sustainable way that at the same time helps our neotropic birds and the local birds and local wildlife and helps change climate ch- climate change. That's, wow. Uh, I mean, I have to say I was, my eyes were open that I have such a bias. Uh, it's just crazy. Anyway, it was really fun to have my eyes open, to have them gently slap me into shape. Well, I enjoyed this episode a lot. I learned a lot. I hope you did too. I learned that it doesn't take only uh, maintaining the Amazon and the huge areas of natural areas in the tropics and around the world to help our local birds during the winter, but the small family farms can make a big difference too. And it's not just shade-grown coffee, but all the other food that's grown. And that doing that in a way that helps the local population, helps helps the local farmers, helps their families, and helps the environment and helps our birds. Wow, can it get better than that? That just is brilliant. I'm so glad that they're doing this work. I'm happy that I've had a chance to contribute to Sustainable Harvest International. If any of you are so inclined, uh, just the link is in the podcast notes or just Google Sustainable Harvest International. Uh, You can check them out. And if you feel so moved, uh, support their causes. Uh, I really had a good time today. I can't wait to get out and visit with Patrick uh, on on the Kitsap Peninsula at his new garden when it opens this spring. Hopefully COVID will allow that. And until next time, make sure you get out birding. Good birding. Good day.